All right, Romans chapter 14, Romans chapter 14, and that is page 948 in those blue Bibles, if you're using one of those that are located around, under the seats around you. I didn't have coffee this morning, so this is a slow star for me. Our coffee was messed up this morning, so I apologize to all of you also who rely on that to make it through the service. <laughs> Because you stay up too late. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Anyway, um, this is part three, of, uh, and we'll have plenty of other messages in here. But let me just, and I cannot possibly re- review every single section over and over again just for sake of time. So I would encourage you, if you haven't listened to the previous messages, to go online and listen to them. I'll do a little bit of review, but very, very little, actually. Um, just remember this, this section from 14, chapter 14, all the way to chapter 15, verse 13, is really a plea for unity, a plea for unity on Paul's part to the church in Rome. Um, I, I read this last time, this quote to you. I'll just read it again. I finished with this quote when we were in part two, and I'll open with this quote. One author says, the Romans, the issues concerning the Roman Christians, they were disputable matters, disputable matters or opinions on which it was not necessary for every single Christian within the church to agree. In other words, they could disagree about these things. And the writer goes on to say that we must not elevate non-essential issues to the level of the essential and make them test of orthodoxy or conditions of fellowship, which is exactly really what was kind of going on uh, within the church. Another writer adds this, that it's, it's really important that we do understand what the issues are here in chapter 14 and 15, and he says it this way, the issue to which Paul speaks is a matter of personal convictions, personal convictions. Individual Christians will often differ on uh, matters of conscience and of liberties, what they're free or not free to do. Uh, the differences of which Paul speaks are not over absolutes or fundamentals of the faith, Okay. So just again, keeping that in perspective as we move through this section and understanding what the real issue is at hand. But you basically had Christians taking sides against one another uh, within the church and condemning one another over what were really non-essential issues, non-essential issues, issues where Christians could differ. And so that was a tragedy, just a tragedy. And it goes on today as well. It still happens within the church. Maybe not these specific issues, certainly, but other issues, issues of conscience, issues of liberty, where Christians will go at it uh, towards one another concerning these things. And, and you'll see Paul's approach to this is stop it. Stop doing that. And he says more than that, obviously, but let's look at the text. We're just going to read verses 1 through 12 today because that's the sh- section we'll cover instead of reading the whole section as I have in the past. So, let your eyes uh, glance down to the Word of God. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, the Apostle Paul wrote this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Those are those disputable matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains Pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. For who are you? This is where we left off last time. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems or regards one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. 
Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay. That's our text for this morning. So after rebuking, in verse 3, both the strong and the weak in the church, and again, I've explained that, I've talked about that, I'll, I'll talk about that again a little bit further on in the sermon, but go back and listen to the other messages if you haven't. But after rebuking them regarding their sinful attitude toward one another or their uh, mutual criticism and their unwillingness to fully accept one another, why? due to their different convictions on various non-essential matters, matters that should not have been made conditions for fellowship. After doing that, in verse 3, Paul continues in verse 4 now to reinforce his exhortation that the weak and the strong must stop condemning each other and instead accept one another, accept one another, that they should welcome, receive one another with open arms, okay? So now, let's look back at the text. We'll pick it back up again in verse 3, just for the context here, and I'll read verse 4 as well. There Paul says, Let not the one who eats, that's the strong, he believes he has liberty to eat all things, including things that the weaker Jewish Christians, because of their uh, influence, because of them living under the law, do not believe or are having trouble with eating. So they don't feel like they can eat those things, but the Gentiles know they can eat these things. They know it's, they're free or they're, they have liberty to eat these things and they're not under the law. So he says, let not the one who eats, that is the strong, despise the one who abstains, that's the weak. And let not the one who abstains, that's the weak, pass judgment on the one who eats. <laughs> For God has welcomed him, he's received them. So who are you to reject them? Then in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. All right, so what is Paul, what's going on here? Well, the point that Paul is getting at in verse 4, let me say this first. The point he's getting at, which I'll explain in a moment, We could apply that both to the strong and the weak Christian for sure. We could apply it to all Christians. But if we take verse 4 in its context, which is what I just did, I read it with verse 3, it is best to understand that Paul in verse 4 is speaking directly to the weak believer. To the weak believer. Why do I say that? Because the phrase, who are you to pass judgment in verse 4, is the very same language Paul used to rebuke the weak believer at the end of verse 3. So that is most likely who Paul is specifically addressing in verse 4, and that will be important in a moment as I go on to explain this. But the principle here, the question can certainly be applied to strong and weak, all Christians, but on Paul's mind when he writes that, I believe he's thinking right now of the weak believer. Who are you to judge? 
your servant, okay? So what is Paul getting at? Well, he uses an illustration concerning the relationship between a human servant, or the word really means household slave, household slave, and his human master, okay? Servants or household slaves were accountable to their master, to their master. And we, we talked about slavery and what it looked like in the Roman Greco, Greco world, and it's, it's not the same tragedy and atrocity that happened uh, in America. It is different. The, you, they, were, they could be servants or slaves because they took over the, the country or the, uh, the community, so through war they became their servants, or it was to pay a debt. You could, you could put yourself in servitude in order to uh, relieve debt or to be paid or to even provide a way of living. Uh, it's a much different situation, and a, a good majority of Rome had these relationships, these servant, slave, household slaves, masters. And by the way, these household slaves, were they did all kinds of things for their masters, and they, some were doctors, uh, they took care of their books, they took, you know, these, it's a different situation. So, just to get that out of the way. So you have servants or household slaves that were accountable to their master, okay, to their master, and obligated to please him. That was the relationship. Everyone understood that. However, the master Paul is thinking about in this situation is not human. He's not thinking about that. He's just using it as an illustration. But the master is divine. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And it is the Lord that the Christian, the servant, is accountable to and obligated to please. And so it is before the Lord This is Paul's point. It is before the Lord or the Christian's master that the Christian stands or falls, as Paul says. You with me? It is before the Lord, the Christian's master, the Christian is the servant, that he or she stands or falls. Now, what does that mean? Stands or falls. It's not literal. It's not literal stand or fall. I believe you could understand Paul's use of the phrase stands or falls to be a way of of speaking of approval or disapproval. Approval or disapproval, or being deemed acceptable or unacceptable. Okay? So now let's put it all together. What is Paul's point? Well, it was the master's right and no one else's, and no one else's, to judge his or her own servant or household slave to approve or disapprove of him or her, or to deem them acceptable or unacceptable. You with me? So, then who are you, Paul says, Christian servant, to approve or disapprove of another servant in these matters? You are not his master. God is. Stop acting like you are. That's what, Paul's, that's what I believe Paul is saying. That's what's going on there. One, one writer said this, just commenting on the world of servants and masters. He says, in ordinary life, in ordinary Roman life, such behavior, that of someone coming along to the master and, and disapproving of that master-servant, such behavior would be regarded as outrageous and would be deeply resented. You get the picture? So 
Master, here's his servant. Someone else comes along and says, I disapprove of your servant. The master would be like, who do you think you are? He's my servant. If he's bidding my business, if he's doing my business, if he's seeking to please me, I'm good. And as long as I'm good with him, he's good. You with me? So stay out of it. He's not your servant. So it was completely then inappropriate. Paul's just drawing this illustration from life in Rome it was comp- and then applying it to the situation that we have in our Christian relationship with the Lord. We are his servant. It was completely inappropriate for these weak and strong Christians to be passing judgment on each other, condemning one another, to be disapproving of one another as they were. Why? Because that prerogative, that right or privilege to decide such things belongs to the Lord, who is the Christian's master. With me? Okay. Then at the end of verse 4, Paul adds this. So he just said, it. hey, it's the Lord, it's his master who decides if he stands or falls. And then he adds this. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, One writer commenting on verse 4 says this. If the servant is acceptable to his master, then it does not matter what his fellow servants think. It does not matter. Uh, the church in Rome, they certainly thought it mattered. It mattered so much they were uh, disfellowshipping. They were kind of putting them outside of the fellowship because they didn't agree with them and they had to agree with them, in a sense, in their particular convictions in order to have fellowship and that just wasn't the case. They, they missed it. They're not the master. If the master's okay with them, if he's good with them, then it, it shouldn't matter. These other things shouldn't matter. These other issues shouldn't come into play. Another writer writes this, a believer's personal assessment of other believers does not in the least affect their standing before the Lord. Now, again, we're talking about true, real believers, but if they're bona fide, authentic, genuine believers then that is an absolutely true statement, all right? Well, I don't, I don't, I don't like uh, what they think about this or that. Again, we're talking about non-essential issues. Okay, that's nice. Doesn't change their standing before the Lord. Doesn't change their approval before the Lord. One writer says, commenting on the verse, he says that the Lord gives him his approval whether he has ours or not whether he has ours or not. Why? 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 Because it is the Lord who is able and willing to sustain their approval, who by his saving grace deems them acceptable. Okay? Deems them acceptable. One writer says this, the strong as well as the weak will stand because the Lord, the Lord is able to make them stand. It's almost like, you know, just again, to put it in another way, Paul's saying, you better back off. You really better back off here. You're, you are outside of your domain. The Lord is the master to whom they answer, and he, and before whom they stand or fall, and oh, by the way, they will stand, because he's willing and able to make them stand. They may not have your approval weak. They may not have your approval strong, but they have the Lord's approval by his grace. 
just kind of setting everyone in their place. Because we are, I'm telling you, an arrogant, self-righteous bunch of folks at times. Yeah. But even that's hard for the self-righteous to hear, right? Yeah. Don't tell me I'm self-righteous. Okay. All right. Um, I won't. All right, so, but I did, so I don't know. It's too late. But anyway, we can be, all of us at times, all of us, beloved. Something we should repent of. But anyway, uh, one writer points out, and this is why I think it's important to see the context, to see that I think he is addressing the weak there. And with that last statement, he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He suggests that the weak, uh, Paul's intention is to suggest to the weak believer that the Lord's approval is is uh, attained not by following rules pertaining to food, but by the Lord's own sustaining power. That's the power of grace. I think that that's certainly a possibility. Oh, you don't think he's going to stay? You don't think he's going to be approved because he eats pork? The Lord will make him stand. It's by his grace that he finds approval with God, not whether he eats vegetables or doesn't eat vegetables. Or This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. So now in verse 5, Paul pauses to introduce another matter on which the strong and weak apparently disagreed and were critical of uh, one another over, and it was a matter concerning the evaluation of days, how one regards a day or doesn't regard a day. And it's another non-essential matter. In the end, these things do not make any real uh, eternal, they don't make eternal difference. So he says there in 14 verse 5, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. Now, uh, what the days are that some were esteeming as better than others or considering more sacred than others, you'll notice it's not specifically stated by Paul, is it? It's not there. It's not in the text. But I think that he is most likely referring, and I've already spoken about this, to certain Jewish festivals and maybe, likely, also the Sabbath. The Sabbath. As I said before, I believe these differences uh, in practice can generally be contributed to the fact that there were two different groups in the church, primarily Jewish and Gentile Christians. For Jewish Christians who had been steeped in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law in Judaism, the observance of certain days was very important to them. It was ingrained in them. It was part of their life. They grew up doing that, okay? But those particular days would not have been equally, necessarily, equally esteemed by the Gentile believers. They didn't grow up under the Mosaic Law or under Judaism. And by the way, they they weren't under the law in Christ. So there was no requirement that they would observe these particular days. But as a way of life, the Jews had always observed these days, okay? So... The Gentiles would have been more inclined to esteem or regard all days alike. And that became an issue for the two groups in the church. You see kind of what's going on. So you have the weak who are saying, why don't you regard this day as important and holy like we do? And the Gentiles are like, Why do you keep trying to force us to regard that day as holy and important? We don't, and we are not required to. Yeah, but we've always done it that way. We've never done it that way. But our God is the one who instructed us in these things. 
I understand that, but your God, my God, has freed us from the law through Jesus Christ, so it's not a requirement of ours. So instead of the Gentiles saying, listen, you guys want to do that, okay, okay, do it, okay? It's cool, man. Instead of these guys saying, hey, we understand that that's not your thing, and we understand you're not required to do those things, but we still want to observe these days. They've always been important to us. Instead of that and saying, but let's not let that divide us, right? Instead of that, these guys look over here and go, what is their problem? Why do they think they have to do that? And these guys go, what is their problem? Why don't they think they have to do that? Okay. So again, there's a, there's a context here, and it's, there's this weak and strong, and so we don't have that specific necessarily, especially the whole Jewish-Gentile thing, but as I told you, there are things that we do that exact thing over, non-essential issues. We, we approach it in the same way. We start attacking one another over matters of conviction, that are not matters of sin. Okay? So. But, but check this out. This is what I want you to notice. Notice that Paul doesn't say anything. You won't find it in the section. Not here, not in the whole section. Paul doesn't want... Okay, let me take that back a little bit. In one place, he says, I know nothing is unclean. That's the only comment he makes. But right here... Concerning, that's another issue about food, dietary laws, okay? So he understands the implications of the gospel and Jesus Christ and freedom from the law. He gets it completely, and he's embraced it. But here, regarding the esteeming of days, the regarding of days, he just says, hey, listen, one person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Now, let me tell you who's right. He do, do you see that? He doesn't do that. He also doesn't say or give a command and say, now this is what you should do. You should esteem these days, these specific ones now I'm going to talk about. You should esteem them as holy, church. Or he doesn't say, you guys should stop doing that and regard all days as alike. He doesn't do that. Do you see that? No, what does he say? Just each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. That's all he says. And so what is that about? Well, Probably what Paul is saying there is, listen, and this is what one writer says, that he's not encouraging mindless behavior, nor is he friendly to unexamined traditions. In other words, listen, each person should examine the matter for himself and determine for himself what is appropriate for him to do, okay, for his practice to be. But don't, and then the other, another writer says, uh, to go along with others to sim- uh, simply because they do it without being convinced uh, personally, can be a dangerous practice, okay? So he's saying, listen, each person needs to investigate the matter for themselves, work it out in their... This is a matter of conscience. It's good, good Christians can take different positions on non-essential issues. And actually, if they're living in love, attend the same church even. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing because that's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the gospel that unites us around Christ and its message and, and grace and mercy and love, right? And sees these things as things that should not divide us or uh, be reasons to not fellowship with one group or the other, okay? So piggybacking now off the dispute about days, Paul again, as he began to do in verse 4, now goes on to reinforce his exhortation that the weak and the strong must stop condemning one another and instead accept one another. 
the weak and the strong, are all servants of the same master. They need to build one another up and not beat one another up, okay? That's the idea, especially over non-essential issues. So now back to 14.6, look at verse 6. Again, piggybacking off the issue of days, he says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. Again, context would tell you that that's the weak believer. The one who eats, this is the strong believer, eats, that is all things. He doesn't limit himself just to vegetables. In honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains from meat, eats vegetables only. That's the weak believer I explained to you. It very well may be because he was concerned that the food wasn't being prepared kosher or according to Jewish law in the particular area he was living, so he just said, I'm not going to eat meat. While the Gentiles over there, they seem to care not about these things, right? So that's, that's what I believe the historical context is. But the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God, okay? Weak and strong, right? Both in their practices. What's the common denominator between these two? Huh? Yeah, giving thanks to God, they're doing it in honor of the Lord. So Paul's point, as I've mentioned this before, is that when it comes to different, non-essential, non-sinful practices among the weak and the strong believers in Rome, both were doing what they were doing out of a motivation to honor the Lord. Therefore, the obvious conclusion is they should stop condemning one another. (laughs) It's as if Paul is saying, listen, Christians, you are on the same team. You have the same goals, the important goals, okay? And while your convictions concerning certain matters may be different, your motive, which is an honorable motive, is the same. You both seek to honor the Lord in your respective practices. And again, to bring it into modern day times, and maybe some of the issues the 21st century church has, as I mentioned homeschooling as an example. This is an area where I've seen Christians go at one another. So the homeschool group, I'm not saying all of them, but from that group, some would say, you who do not homeschool your kids, obviously don't love the Lord, because if you did, you would homeschool your children and get them out of that pagan, ungodly, secular system where they teach them all kinds of awful things okay that i'm just kind of repeating what they would say and they say listen we homeschool our kids and honor the lord. we're desiring to honor the lord and so we believe the best way for us to do that is pull our kids out of the public school system and and train them up ourselves over here the public school parents are like wait a minute um i talked to my wife about homeschooling and she said no Well, just, you know, over here, they're like, well, (laughs) you need to get her in line. You're obviously not a good husband then. I mean, this just keeps going back and forth. He's like, "Uh, why don't you come over here and try living with her? Come on over here. Why don't you try that out? Um, But they say, listen, I believe, you know, I mean, uh, the best thing for our children, for their education, at least in these things, in math and history, and we recognize the, the weaknesses maybe of the system or the dangers, and so we're going to talk our kids through those things, and we're going to help them be a light within the... Po- I mean, come on. But then they, uh, they start to go after one another and make this an issue for fellowship. 
within the body of Christ? It just shouldn't be. And they start to condemn one another. It shouldn't be. You should be within any local body of Christ. You might have folks at homeschool and folks who don't. Okay. You know, it'd be the same thing. And again, I'll touch something eventually where uh, people want to strangle me or whatever. I get that, and I'm cool with that. But vaccinations or no vaccinations? Some heated, heated debates. Should we vaccinate our kids? I, you know, parent, that's a decision. You have to work through that. You want to honor the Lord? You want to, you want to take care? And, you, and honoring the Lord means taking care of those children that God gave you. They're a gift from God, right? You have to work through that, parent. Well, I think, uh, I, I think I'm okay with the vaccinations. Fine, that's something you've got to work through, parent. But you think for a second I'm going to stand up here and say, you're right, you're wrong, and that's what they start to do to one another. And yet both have, in honor of the Lord, trying their best to work through all the data, you know, are making those decisions. And those are their decisions to make before the Lord. That's what I'm saying. Because I, I'm saying that because I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. They're matters of conscience. They are not matters for Christians to divide over. And yet, Christians do. And beloved, in the midst of these dark days, we have to be united over the things that are important, you know? Don't let Satan come in and divide this local body. I'm not, there's nothing like, you know, present, like situation, but it's always possible. There could be things lurking right under the surface that we don't even know about, just ready to boil over, okay? Don't let the enemy do that. All right, so here we go. So in verses 7 through 9, I think what happens is Paul gives the reason now in these verses for both the weak and the strong's shared motivation behind their different practices. And what is that motivation? To honor the Lord, to glorify the Lord, to please the Lord. What is the reason for that? I think we find that in 7 through 9. It begins with the word for. It's usually an explanatory thing. Okay, I'm going to explain what I just said, why they are both doing what they're doing in honor of the Lord, okay? So then beginning in verse 7, Paul says this, for none of us, he includes himself, Christians, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whatever, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord, both of the dead and of the living. So what is Paul talking about here? I, I think it's this, simply this. He's talking about the lordship of Jesus Christ and the implications of it for the believer. So listen to me. Through his redemptive, that is Christ, his redemptive death and resurrection, through his redemptive death and resurrection, Jesus Christ established not only his claim to deity and saviorhood, he established both as being true, but also his lordship over every believer, both the living and the dead. Being our Lord means that we belong to him uh, and exist for him, no longer for ourselves. Whether it be in this life or the next, we are his. 
Therefore, our lives are not our own. And all that we do now is done to him. To him. That's the phrase Paul uses. That is for the benefit of or in the interest of the Lord. For the benefit of or in the interest of the Lord. Okay? Therefore, in light of that, the lordship of Christ, his lordship over us as believers, our lives should be carried out with purpose. What purpose? What purpose? What do you think? To please the Lord. To please the Lord. We no longer live for ourselves. We live for him. He owns us. He's our master. Beloved, let me say it this way. The lordship of Jesus Christ obligates us as his servants to strive to please him in everything that we do, which is what both the weak and the strong in their respective practices were doing. Okay? And that's the reason for why they were doing it. One writer says this, Because he is our Lord, we must live for him. Amen? Amen? Because he is also Lord of our fellow Christians, we must respect their relationship to him and mind our own business. For he died and rose to be Lord. Not just over me, but over you as well, over my fellow brother and sister in Christ. He is your Lord. So let me say this, because that mind your own business thing you might take that and rip it out of its context, and you shouldn't do that. So let me say this, and it's, this is the mistake we make. We come into one section of Scripture, and then we take it and make it mean something that it shouldn't mean and contradicts another section of Scripture. That's a mistake. Don't do that. So when we're talking about minding your own business, and the author says that, again, specifically concerning these non-essential issues, secondary issues, right? Because we don't mind our own business, within the body of Christ on matters of sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We do not. Paul's already made that clear. So if we were moving through Romans, which we have, and reading it as a letter, which it is, we would have already read about that. So that's already been established. So certainly, Paul is not saying, hey, mind your own business, period. That means stay out of the lives of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's talking about in this specific setting, okay? So we in love, right? And truth, rebuke, exhort, instruct, correct, and even exercise restorative church discipline when necessary within the body of Christ. Yay or nay? Yay. And if we don't do that, we're not living to please the Lord. Huh? But it's then taking that and and applying that to these non-essential issues, which are not matters of sin and elevating them to a level they should never have been elevated to, and saying, oh, I am going to get up all in your business. You shouldn't be vaccinating your kids. You should be homeschooling. You shouldn't be home. I don't know, whatever it is. It's all these issues. You should dress more appropriately for church in the sense of, Wear a tie, I guess, or it just depends on the it depends. Whereas one believer, he's desiring to honor the Lord. So for him, his matter of conscience calls him 
to where is best, okay? Another believer, <laughs> I'm not sure what he's wearing, <laughs> but he's okay. <laughs> he's okay with what he's wearing. And again, like I told you, then other issues would come into play. So if a believer walked in and said, listen, I'm very comfortable with wearing almost nothing. I'd say, well, now we have an issue of sin. Right? Now it's raised to a level of sin. Okay? So it gets tricky, doesn't it? It gets a little tricky. Because sometimes we want to fight about what are non-essential issues. That's often what the issue is, right? So we immediately say, no, this is not a non-essential issue. This is a matter of sin. Is it? Be sure about that before you want to... And again, even in that... Okay, listen. Is it... Okay. Even in matters of sin, okay? Even in matters of sin, we are not to condemn... Not a brother and sister in Christ, but rather to pray for them. And as we have opportunity, seek to help them in a spirit of gentleness, those Christian brothers and sisters in Christ who have erred. That's Galatians 6.1. So even as we approach that, we, we recognize, all right, here's my, here's my brother and sister or whatever. Oh, my goodness, all right, they're going off the deep end, but I am not their Lord I am not their master. They will have to give an account, but I am their brother and sister, so I want to come alongside them. I want to pray. Pray for the opportunity to speak into their lives. Maybe if I know them, have a relationship with them already, take an opportunity to speak into their lives. Exhort, rebuke, in love, with truth, for their good. That's love, okay? See what I'm saying? But doing it not in a way like condescending. Oh, oh, look at you. You are so radically corrupt. You know, if only you were like me, if only you were like me, you would be uh, not doing that, obviously, you know? Uh, and I'm going to tell you, we're going to get to it later on, but love really is the, the overarching theme here. It's that self-sacrificing, caring commitment that shows itself in seeking the highest good of the one, of the one loved. You remove love from the uh, equation... Everything falls apart. That's the same for the body of Christ. You want to take, you take love out of the equation, you stop loving your brothers and sisters in Christ, then all bets are off, man. And uh, you kind of you go at this in the, in the wrong way. Okay, so I don't know where I am. Wow. Okay, here we are. All right, so verse 10. Got to go fast. Uh, verse 10, now look at this. So then Paul says, he just comes back now. He, he, this is where he started, he comes back again. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Now watch this. Watch the use here. It's kind of cool. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? So you can think of it that way, where Paul's kind of like the you. You see all the use there? You know, because you've got two fraction, factions in the church competing. They're like attacking one another. says, hey, you, and oh, and you, why do you, right? Okay, so he's got them both. He's got them both. And then he says this, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Uh, based on the context, we know that the, the first of Paul's questions, like I said, they're both intended to be a rebuke, but the first one is addressed to the weak. I would, that's what I would say. And the second is to the strong. But both are being questioned by Paul, rebuked by Paul, because both are guilty of being critical of one another. Both are guilty of condemning each other all right, over these matters. Now look back to the last sentence of verse 10. What does it say? What does it say? What does it say? 
For we, so, okay, so here's why I'm asking the question. That's what the for means. I'm going to explain. I just asked you that question. I just looked at you. I just looked at you in the congregation. But here's why I'm asking. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, I referenced this verse and the judgment seat of God when we were in Romans 13. In Romans 13. So if you were with us then and you heard it, then you already know the answer. But I explained then that this judgment to which Paul refers is not... Uh, the great white throne judgment, or the judgment of the great white throne, which is recorded in Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15. What is that judgment? That is the judgment where unbelievers, unbelievers, those who have rejected Jesus Christ, those who have refused to, to receive the light or seek Christ, they will have their lives evaluated against the, the standard of God's perfect holiness, and, and they will be found wanting. They will be found in trouble. And because they have no Savior to rescue them, they will be cast into the lake of fire. That's Revelation twenty eleven through 15, a destiny that we should desire for no man or woman. That's why we preach the gospel, right? in hopes that they will turn and embrace Jesus Christ and escape that judgment that is to come. Uh, that's not the judgment Paul's talking about there. But there is a judgment. We will not escape judgment entirely. It says the Christians, uh, Christians will not come under that one, but they will be judged, every single one of us, you and I, we will be judged by our master for the way in which we lived our Christian lives. We will give an account to God for what we did or didn't do with the life that he gave us. We will give an account for how faithful we were to him and his word, okay? And this is the judgment to which Paul is referring to in Romans 14. You can also read about that judgment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 10. There it's called the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ, one and the same. Judgment of God, the judgment seat of Christ. Now, Paul goes on to support his statement about this judgment at the end of verse 10. This is very, uh, you should be familiar with this, this is what Paul regularly does through the book of Romans. He makes a statement, then he draws from the Old Testament scriptures to support that statement. So here, he quotes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah concerning that judgment. And he says in verses 11, or verse 11, he says there, For it is written, that's in Isaiah, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then again, Paul restates, verse 12, so then, each of us, notice the phrasing, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Okay, You won't be giving an account of your brother and sister in Christ. You won't be answering to God for them. You'll be answering to God for your own life. Okay? And no one's going to step in there and answer for you either. It's you and God. All right? So what is Paul's point in talking about the judgment to come? A judgment from the Lord that, will, that we will all eventually undergo. Well, I think it's this. I think his point is primarily that the weak and strong were wrong, Okay? For passing judgment on one another, that's what he continues to go after. Why? Because God will be the one who does that in due time. It was simply not their place to pass judgment on their brothers or sisters in Christ, fellow servants, or to render a verdict on them, since they were, in effect, 
usurping the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, Usurp means to seize something without right. Okay? They were usurping the lordship of Jesus Christ in doing what they were doing, condemning their brothers and sisters in Christ. One writer says this, God is the judge, and we are among the judged. We get this backwards. So we should stop passing judgment on one another, for then we will avoid the extreme folly of trying to usurp God's prerogative and anticipate judgment day. Another writer says this, judging is a divine prerogative, saying the same thing. To take up that role is to usurp the place of God himself. That's really not a place you want to be. Okay? And again, just remember what we're talking about, judging this they're passing judgment. They're passing a verdict. They're condemning one another. So we're not talking about being discerning or making a judgment if this is wrong or this is right, okay, in that way. So, for instance, if, if, if I say, uh, just as an example, a uh, brother um, living with this person, this uh, other person, and having physical relationships with them when you're not married, that's sin, you can't judge me. Says it right there in Romans 14. That is not what he's talking about. This is, in that case, this is a brother hopefully coming with the right attitude who wants to help them out of that situation, wants to lead them out of unrighteousness towards righteousness, right? Because, or even just talking to them about, maybe they don't even know Jesus Christ, but he knows sin is destructive and destroys, so he's trying to lead him away from that. That's not what he's talking about, and yet that's, people try to pull that card all the time because they don't want to deal with their sin. You can't judge me. Okay, that's, you're, what are you talking about? I'm just saying what the Bible says, okay? This is this, this uh, self-righteous, condemning, kind of action that's going on. And they're determining, they're making a verdict which they have no right to make. God has welcomed them and accepted them and by his grace they will stand but they were condemning one another suggesting they weren't acceptable to God because they did, they ate this or they didn't eat this or they practiced this day or didn't practice this day. Yeah? You see what I'm saying? Non-essential issues. So, uh... Here's another quote. Paul makes the point that both groups will have to answer to God in the coming day, so it is premature to pass judgment on one another, seeing, I like this, that an infallible judge will assume that responsibility. Infallible. That is what he's saying is a judge incapable of making a mistake. Hey, brother and sister, have you ever made a mistake? Especially in your consideration about someone, you know, or what you thought about them, or like you understood all the motives of their heart, like you can look right into their heart, you, you got it all figured out. No, you don't. No, you don't. And so God does. God sees everything. He sees it all, and he knows perfectly, and so his judgment will be perfect. Let him deal with it, all right? Let him make those decisions and those verdicts. Let him do it, because he's the only one that can do it rightly and correctly in the end. Uh, what Paul is saying in Romans is also found, I believe, the same idea. It's found in 1 Corinthians 4. There Paul says this uh, in verse 5, Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. God is judged. Let him do what he does. Let him do it. Don't get in the way of it. But what is Paul's concluding thought after writing verses 1 through 12? 
How do we know? After it's all said, 1 through 12, he's made all these arguments. What does he conclude with? That's verse 13. That's verse 13. There he says, therefore, based on everything I just told you, it's simple. In case you missed it, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, which means they were doing that. Let us not do that. And then this leads us into the next section, which is awesome, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So it's not just stop doing this, but here's what you're supposed to do. Here's how, if you love one another, here's what you're supposed to do. And we're going to talk about that next time. Let me close with this quote. The writer says this, It is a terrible thing for men, concerning this text, to play God, as it is often phrased. The work of Christians is to serve the Lord, not to usurp his lordship by self-righteously judging fellow believers. Our concern, rather, should be for being judged ourselves by the Lord, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. And I've said this before, if we spent just a little more time doing some self-analysis, self-examination, really crying out to the Lord as David didn't say, Lord, reveal in me any sinful way. Huh? Reveal in me, Lord, because I know I'm messed up, but I'm so deceived by my own sin, sometimes I don't see how I'm messed up. So Lord, would you reveal in me, would you root out bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and unlovingness, all that? Would you root that lust? Would you root that out of my life? Would you reveal that any time it comes up in my life? Would you do that for me, Lord? Help me to see it and give me the strength and power and grace to run from it, to flee from it, and to replace it with righteous behavior, right? But often, we're like, got you, I got you. You got some, not you specifically, brother, I'm just using you right there. And you looked at me. I see something in your life. I see something. But even then, even if that was true, what approach would I take to that? You know, if it was sin. But a lot of times then, in this matter, it's not even sin issues. It's like, you just don't agree with me on this, so you obviously got a problem on non-essential issues. Huh? Anyway. We're going to take communion now. Communion. And uh, again, I won't say anything about communion because I'll let my brother come up here and talk about communion for a moment.